In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. indeed found no proscenium the voice of everything immersive i'm your host noah nelson and welcome to episode 378 this week on the show another double header this time reaching to two different parts of the immersiverse first up we have a great talk with nate koch the prolific producer who has been part of sleep no more queen of the night and the epic opening of Hermes flagship store in New York city to talk about a career that balances creating art and working with some of the biggest companies in the world for clients in experiential marketing. It's the first time Nate and I have talked and we have a fantastic conversation. Then Athena Demos and Doug Jacobson of big rock creative are back on the show to chat about the surprise closing of alt space VR, which was just announced and is coming up next month. That's where they've been hosting the award-winning virtual burning man celebration known as BRC VR. The future of that particular project and of big rock creative as a whole is the center of our chat. And we also get into some broader thoughts about the state of VR at this particular moment in time. Uh, another good conversation. I brought you two good ones this week. I try and bring you good ones every week, but I'm I'm I'm, I'm particularly happy with with how these turned out. Okay, a few more things before we jump into it. On the front page of NoPro this week, you will find this month's call sheet feature, our ongoing roundup of professional opportunities in the immersive fields. Uh, this is going to update all month, but right now at launch, we've got casting in San Diego, jobs in New York City, LA, SF, the Dallas area. Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, we've got festival and conference deadlines in Arizona, LA, and Berlin, some of which are coming up very fast. So check it out. You may not be looking for something right now, but someone you know probably is. So give it a look. It's in the show notes and spread it around. Or if you want to add an opportunity, please email us at callsheet at noproscenium.com. Please include a link to the opportunity on your website or on a job site when possible. Uh, we, we don't like to be responsible for errors, so we leave that up to you to do. Uh, link in the show notes. Uh, also, it'll be in this week's newsletter, which is shaping up to be fairly hefty. Remember, if you've got an experience you want listed, submit that at everythingimmersive.com. That is offered up for free as a community service and made possible by our generous Patreon supporters. And we've got a whole bunch of new ones to thank in a moment. As you know, this is one of our make or break months, and last week we let newsletter subscribers know that we need to clear the $3,000 a month mark by the middle of March, or we're going to pull the newsletter behind a paywall. Something I don't really want to do, but the numbers suggest that's the way to go. Saying that, I do not like saying that, but it is true. However, I'm happy to report that we've made incredible strides in the last week and are now at 403 patrons on Patreon which just wowzers, uh, and are just $10 away from being at $27.50 a month, which is just $250 away from the big goal. I think we can do this. And this is all possible because of, big breath, Mark Wizorek, Mike Schnur, Rachel Victor, Devin McDermott, Lou Collins, Mike McClelland, 
Whitney Bronston Rubison, Verlicia, Shannon Pang, Saint, Control Group Productions, Kate, Charlene Conley, Matthew Purden, Isara Palantong, and a bump from David Markland. As little as $2 a month at patreon.com slash no proscenium guarantees your access to the newsletter no matter what and helps push back the lowering of the dreaded paywall for everyone. We are just $260 a month away from resetting the paywall clock. Uh, and I really want to do that because I don't like doing it this way, but it's the only thing that makes sense. Ah, uh, what a what a position. If you're already a backer, drop a review on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. You'd be surprised at how much that matters and share the articles you find useful on your social media platform of choice. Our recent most anticipated of 2023 so far article and the call sheet are both good candidates for that. It helps immensely. We are always no proscenium, except on Insta, where we are no underscore proscenium. And as always, big thanks to our sustaining backers, Samuel Mustry, Chris Woolman, Samantha Davison, Eric Shamlin, Elaine, Daryl, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Gentes, Tom Leonetti McGuire, Wynne Thorne, Ryan, David Bassick, Richard Ayers, Lonnie Hanson, the Ministry of Peculiarities, and Jan Budman. And remember, if you want to help out and you've got a company, email me at noah at noperscenium.com and we will find something. And there's someone I got to write back about that right now, like in the middle of talking to somebody. Hopefully, hopefully. That counts. That counts towards the 3,000, just so you know, right? I'm not going to, it's all one pile of money that my landlord takes. Let's get into the show. Nate Koch's CV reads like a brief history of the last decade of Immersive, starting out as part of the development team for the still-running production of Sleep No More in New York City, producing Queen of the Night, executive producing Sweeney Todd at the Barrow Street Theater, and producing David Byrne's Theater of the Mind, all running in parallel with a career producing major events for the likes of Google and the recently much-buzzed-about Love Around the Block, a musical block party which launched the new flagship Hermes store on Madison Avenue. He is the founder of NVK, an NYC-based boutique executive producing and management firm and the winner of Lortel and Drama Desk Awards. Hello, Nate. This is obviously long overdue, and like most things here, all my fault. Hi, how's it going? <laughs> Lovely to be here. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Fantastic. So you know the drill. Um, I want to get into origin story and the whys of it all, but let's start in the present okay. where you are now which is this interesting sure. point where you're making work on both sides of the aisle, direct to audiences and client work. Were you always a juggler? <laughs> <laughs> Why am I laughing That's at my own great. questions? I don't know. Giddy. That's a great question. Um, yeah. I mean, I think I'm just so curious about how the, the world works and how there are different ways and sort of fora in which people interact. And so I, you know, I, I definitely started out um, with a penchant and an interest in making art for art's sake and, and audience members. But I think, you know, the immersive sort of being birthed in the sort of wide way, simultaneous to this growth in experiential marketing um, is something I could have never prepared for. I think they just sort of fed off each other, certainly more the marketing off of the creative side. And so it, it, it sort of grew out of just being accidental, but learning how 
brands, and, and particularly if you're working on a project that doesn't have to recoup or doesn't have to have an ongoing business model, but is sort of this mm-hmm. like supernova that is just meant to happen for one night or one weekend or something like that. Um, that over time has actually been the thing that I've come to really appreciate those appreciate about those projects because it means you don't have to bifurcate in the same way of having to, you know, create this machine that's going to run for a long time. It's sort of about being able to put like incredible focus into nailing it, which is in its own way, um, a super nervous, uh, nerves inducing thing to do. But, um, I do enjoy that part of the working with brands. You said super nervous there. For some reason, I flashed on that old Daffy Duck cartoon where, like, in order to like beat bugs, he like swallows nice nitroglycerin and gunpowder and shakes himself up and lights a match and then like explodes and the audience goes crazy and bugs is like more, more, they want more and Daffy's like you can only do it once. Um, and, and that true. for something like for something like Lover on the Block, uh, I mean, how much work went into putting on that? one-shot musical block party to launch the store. How long were you guys working on that? Uh, well, the truth is it was an extraordinary, like sort of in the definition of extraordinary amount of work um, from a variety of in- incredibly talented and wonderful people. Um, I think my team started working on it in April and the event happened the very end of September. So I can't do the mental math right now, but you know, it's almost six months, almost six months. Yeah. Just a shy Um, of. And a few folks had been working on, so uh, uh, longtime collaborators of mine, Jason Egan and Teddy Bergman, their company ad hoc was sort of the official vendor for Hermes. And they, with Isaac Oliver, uh, extraordinary TV writer, um, had been working on it, I think, for maybe another six months prior. They had taken some trips to Paris. And so, it, you know, for, for some it was, and certainly the brand, a much longer thing in, in, uh, in development. But it was a really interesting one because, you know, something on the theater side, not necessarily even the immersive side, but, you know, we often talk about how the average time it takes to make a work is really long. It's, you know, sometimes a musical is usually five to eight years. Um, And I've always just wondered, like, is that really necessary? And is there a way to, you know, if, if you think about it, like on film or on TV shoots, which is something I'm really envious of increasingly these days of the idea of like a group of people basically being full time, almost locked in a room together for a certain number of months, completely obsessive and, and really kind of blocking out everything but that one project, um, this was sort of an opportunity to do that because out of necessity, we just didn't have any more time. And so it was uh, overwhelming at times and and complex to make something that new so quickly um, with such little rehearsal time. But it was looking back a really kind of thrilling opportunity to just have to be in a situation where every day you have to be making progress creatively, producerially, logistically, um, and, and to sort of live live it, breathe it, eat it. Um, you know, my wife wasn't, and son probably weren't as excited about that, but uh, but I think it was a great thing to go on a journey with a team. Um, I feel really grateful for the Aramis team to uh, give us the opportunity. Do you think that experience, because you mentioned you're, you're jealous of the film and TV development about that, that maniacal focus, and you compare it to developing, say, a new musical, which can be years. I think of some of the turnaround times on, you know, much smaller and much smaller budgeted immersive 
networks like in LA, like kind of like your pop-up indie scene stuff, folks will sure. sometimes like go super fast and sometimes it shows and sometimes it doesn't because this things come together like a miracle. But do you think having had this experience that's going to inform going forward how how you approach the the creative projects, the, the direct to audience as opposed to the client one? It's a great question. I mean, I think sort of two things that makes me think of is as someone who has worked primarily on larger scale stuff that does move at a glacial speed, um, it definitely made me very envious of kind of the, you know, productions you were just talking about, like some of the LA pop-ups of just sort of the like Duplass brother idea of like the iPhone movie and just like makes shit and don't wait for all of the plate tectonics to come into play. Um, I think this year, you know, we have a couple of things we're thinking of trying to make in that way. And partially that was, I think, the excitement of Love Around the Block is just like a much shorter gestation period. But I think the main thing I'm keen to bring on from that period is the idea. We, we didn't employ a writer's room on Love Around the Block per se, but because we were working so frequently, it had that vibe um, mm. of just a bunch of people work. And that to me is a really sticky thing to mind, particularly for immersive, because I think getting the the sort of right chemistry of people in the room who, you know, maybe specialize in different things, whether it's script or movement or experience design, but sort of locked in a room together. And in that writer's room way, we were to really like embrace the idea of like how much laughter there would be and how much how exciting it is to like stack ideas on top of each other um and i think we often talk about the theater at least is like a very collaborative art form but it's super collaborative when you get into rehearsal and tech and workshops but separate from that it can be quite solitary especially for mm -hmm. an author and sometimes a director so i think that was the main thing it's just like it's so joyous and restorative to to do so much socially in that way and i think and particularly for a medium like immersive, it's a it's a great thing we can grab from. Something I'm always curious about when it comes to the, the relationship between this experiential marketing work and theater and immersive theater is actually on the audience side. And and I wonder if in your experience of, of creating both, if you're mm. seeing whether the the experiential marketing audience is like waking up to the possibilities of immersive theater of experiential entertainment as something more than just when they're being marketed to. And I don't even know how we would like measure that. It's like, you know, there's surveys <laughs> we could do, but like there's also the sort of the gestalt of an audience, right? Like I think back yes, to yes. after going to sleep no more, the first time I saw an LA audience try to approach immersive a piece and they just formed a little circle to let them, mm -hmm. they formed a little theater in the round to let the performers perform. And it wasn't until someone crossed out of that theater in the round that they realized, Oh, I can go anywhere. Like there's, there's the, there's the folk knowledge. Yes. It's interesting. I mean, I, I think sometimes the trickiest, I mean, there, there is definitely that there's like the practice to going to the, the works, although that has its own, um, double-edged sword, right? Like I think especially something as mammoth as Sleep No More, which really encourages the sort of this childlike curiosity of rifling through things. There are some shows 
that are so not built with that in mind, but that is an activity so many people love. And if it's that's the only immersive thing they've seen or really encountered, they will want to interact with the world in the same way. And that can sometimes be um, challenging, right, too, because you don't want to set up, you, you don't want to people to feel like their expectations are being um, not met, but if that's right. not what you were going for. So, uh, so I think there's that, but on some level too, I think it's, you know, it's very different to purchase a ticket and seek something out and have those like butterflies of either, I know nothing that's about to happen, or I've read a couple articles, um, and coming into that, that forum from that perspective where I think for a lot of experiential marketing, um, I think some people are coming out of a sense of obligation, but there, there's less of a sense of the kind of understanding of what you're going to go into. And so um, that's something we try to capitalize on or we try to incorporate into the beginning um, of an experience, perhaps, to try to set people up for success. But it's it's definitely interesting because I think, you know, in the shows that I do and, and many in this do, you know, we try to start seeding the world and universe of of the play the show as early as possible you know prior to the ticket purchase and so sometimes for the experimental marketings it's just you have fewer um sort of bites at the apple up front and so you're yeah. it's a little bit of a different or heavier lift in person for for a brand like Hermes, i can imagine you know some of the lift is handled by the scale of the brand, the, the, the deep story there for, for something that might be being introduced to people for the first time, I can imagine that lift gets uh, a little more complicated. Absolutely. Absolutely. But honestly, it was such a thrill to, to make something, you know, that show didn't even really feel like experiential marketing. It's, it's such a creative brand that really, operates outside of our expectation of perhaps a luxury brand. It's like their, their origins are from such a place of craft. Uh, The, the, the family that started the company is still heavily involved in the leadership and the ownership of the company. And so it almost was like we had this collaborator um, working with us, which was, you know, of course, an army of people in New York and uh, in Paris, but, but really the brand, it was like a lovely uh, jumping off point. Um, which isn't always the case. So it was a real pleasure. As we came out of the high pandemic, it, it felt like we got a little bit of a, of, a, of a kick of people getting back into doing experiential marketing material. I saw a, a fair mm-hmm. number of actors who in the immersive scene working on a lot of pieces. I saw, uh, you know, obviously Lover on the Block and, and some other large scale things. Do you feel like there has been... Um, kind of a, a picking up where we left off before 2020 with this kind of experiential marketing is, is the demand on the client side uh, the same as it was, or maybe even growing as, as more clients get more comfortable or as envy kicks in mm. or is envy kicking in? <laughs> <You know>? no. <laughs> or are they just going I, like, I, Oh, it cost how much to reach how many people? I'm just going to buy some Instagram ads. <laughs> You know that I can get it's, fifty thousand impressions for that for for, for four hundred dollars. Yeah, it's so true. Well, you know, it's it's sort of I don't remember exactly when the the sort of regulation came in that sort of dramatically shifted like the ad practices of Facebook and others. Ask not to track Apple. That was what 
2020, 2021. Yeah. Yeah. So it was around the same time. So I, you know, I'd be curious if like from the CMO perspective that may have, um, catalyzed, uh, you know, reaching in the direction of, of doing IRL stuff. Um, but you know, it is, it is interesting. Like it's incredibly laborious and expensive to make them. Um, but, and I'm not, you know, obviously there's lots of buzzwords and articles about this, but I, I think people are developing more and more this sense of like the analog experience is something that imprints in your psyche in a different way than something you can get um, that it, through through sort of typical marketing strands. And and I don't even think that needs necessarily be in real life. I think it's like live with things that feel real. You know, there's been a couple like Jay Rinsky, what he's done with Little Cinema, I think is really interesting um, in terms of uh, being at the forefront and trying to be able to make experiences that are happening digitally that have that same um, sort of thrill to them. So I think there is something that like people want the the sort of home cooked meal approach, the, the tasting menu approach, like someone has made something for me to go through and, and I am carried through it with, my wife has a beautiful line, it's like with the confidence of someone leading you through a restaurant with their hand on the small of your back, but not too hard, but but sort of gently and wonderfully. And I think that is something we want because we can sort of do whatever we want on our phones at all times. And it's so overwhelming and weirdly to go to something that is live, right. And is not the theatrical in the way of, you know, you're sitting in a seat looking at a frame, but that you're able to have agency, but it's in the structure of something that feels, uh, uh, sort of safe and, and inspiring. Um, I do think brands are seeing that as a big opportunity. Yeah. You know, the, the the value of it being you're given agency but you're not asked to do an infinite number of things like you're empowered but yes. you still know you, you still kind of know where your touch points are and that can be very relaxing as opposed to you know just being plunged into something and having no idea what you're supposed to do some people really love being dropped off in a sandbox you know but but it definitely but, and 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 some days I love it and some days I'm like I just just tell me tell me what button to push or who am I supposed <laughs> to talk to you know like. well my joke is always like at certain <laughs> immersive shows many of which I love um, if you've been before you know so if the front of house has a sort of world to them and they're like hello welcome and I'm like where's the bathroom and they're like the bathroom I'm like just tell me where the bathroom is like I just need to like get some get some shit done um, yeah I always find that really funny <laughs> yeah. Logistics first, need, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't need lore. Once there was a grotto. Yes, the one you pee in. I need to know yes, where it is yes. now, or yes, this will exactly. be coming. So, oh man. <laughs> um, well, let's. I, I want to let's let's flash back a bit. Uh, you were I mentioned at the top. You're part of the dev team of the NYC run of Sleep No More, right? the, the McKittrick, yep. the, the the fame, the the ship that launched a, a thousand shows. <laughs> Uh, how how did you wind up on that project? It's um, a great question. Um, well, <laughs> you're still figuring. Out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just so funny how life happens in these in these bizarre accidents. But um, well, so for context, I I got my um, my degree at NYU in in the Tisch School um, in the Playwrights Horizons Theater School sort of program, which teaches sort of everything, and so it was. It was quite a, a, a comprehensive program 
um, that took up so much time in terms of training, but also making shows and such in directing and design and creating original work. And at some point in my college experiences, I was like, I need to get the fuck out of here, both in terms of New York, but also in terms of, I was like, I'm, I'm sort of tired of being in these dark rooms. Like at the time, I didn't even know what I was looking at. I was being really pretentious and calling it like the postmodern theatrical experience. But I was like, I'm hungry for something different. And NYU have, you know, is a sort of like lovely but terrible institution. But one of the great things they have is an amazing study abroad program. And so they had, a, had and I believe still have, a program in Ghana and West Africa. And I went there and it was, it was, I always say it was the best semester I ever had of arts education, just in terms of, and really immersive training, uh, of being plunked down in a place where as like a white, cis, heterosexual uh, male, um, being in a place in which I was dramatically the minority and challenging a lot of my understandings about how I've moved through the world in the past. But, but even more so is specifically it's a... Ghana has such an, a rich tradition of just communication in person, socially, in every possible way. It's like you're negotiating for taxis. Like when I got malaria, the taxi driver was negotiating with me to get there. Um, you're, you know, in the market, everyone's yelling to each other and talking. And so I, I came home from that really, really enthralled, but like really kind of in a dark place because I was like, I feel like I'm even less interested in what I always thought I wanted to do. Um, mm that overlapped with a um i was designing a show and sent like a really weird creepy email to david corns the production designer because i someone had used his his work as a reference image um and i was like i'm obsessed with you i would love your work i want to do whatever i can and he eventually hired me as an intern and then an assistant and so uh, i started my career with david who is also you know an amazing fixture in the immersive community but one of the the gigs that he got was to production design a Halloween nightclub pop-up experience called Purgatorio, which was, I always say it's like one of the best and worst things I've ever done, but I loved it because my friends came and were like, this is so dope and cool. Um, and it was crazy. It's like we had coffins and people would go into coffins standing up and be turned around. It was like the first floor was you know, if you walked in, it was a funeral parlor, and then the first floor was hell, then you went up to purgatory, and then you went up to heaven. But this was conceived sort of by Randy Weiner and Simon Hammerstein, who a few years prior had um, opened the box, which is, a box. Um, you know, a sort oh, of yeah. legendary, infamous, legendary infamous. Yeah. experience yeah. design and all the things. And so Randy had spent a lot of time in, in the UK and had certainly experienced punch drugs work but he would uh, it was at that time he was talking a lot about like the mask of the red death and some of their earlier shows and uh so it's i sort of got to know it i was kind of an associate producer on that project um working on different aspects and was at the beginning of my career and um sort of doing a mixture of kind of like line producing and budgeting and just like general advancing the project and so randy uh, after that concluded said you know i sort of need someone to help me with this thing, there's a show called Sleep No More that's running in Boston at my wife's theater, his wife's Diane Paulus, and uh, he said, you know, we're interested in bringing it to New York, but need to do some some sort of budgeting and forecasting, and could this be something you could um, support? So it sort of happened organically from that. I remember I took like a Bolt bus or one of those $8 whatever buses from Chinatown up to Boston and um, saw the show at the uh, 
the public school of I forget I think Boyle, on Boylston Street, but um, Boylston Road I forget, but it, just an extraordinary life changing. You know, I emailed a bit with Colin Nightingale, who's one of the um, real masters behind Punch Drunk, and met him there at the bar and got to experience the show firsthand, which I had had an awareness of already from the some of the planning and conversations we'd had, but was really just completely blown away. And so, so, so sort of the brief that I had um, was sort of thinking about with the, you know, Randy, Arthur, and Jonathan, the New York producers who were, you know, trying to bring this mammoth mountain to New York and, and pe- no one understood what it was. So it was very, very challenging for them in a certain way, but sort of with them and with the Punch Drunk team about how to take this work um, that had happened in a school. There was also a previous incarnation in London and how to kind of like remap it onto another piece of real estate. And it was the first time I'd sort of been a part of that process of taking, uh, you know, supporting really, but just, you know, looking at these different layouts and how they can sort of go. And I'd always been really interested in architecture and set design, like I'd said. So it sort of just became really thrilling to me, that sort of idea of, of the play being not as much a script, but as as a sort of four-dimensional experience. And I'd always really been into video games growing up. And so it sort of became this like melding of those worlds for me. And um, I departed the project before it really happened. It was right as they sort of uh, were, were finalizing the deal on the 27th Street piece. And um, it was it was partially a result of like, you know, not coming from an independently wealthy family and sort of needing a sort of uh, full-time job as it were at the time. Um, but but the, the sort of year I spent working on it, um, it was it was absolutely thrilling. And I often think this about, about shows, you know, when you're at the very beginning, it's a very special thing because you, you're, there are only a small number of people who are sort of talking about it and obsessing about it. It's before you've shared it with the world. And I remember thinking, you know, I think this is gonna change the world in a way. And I remember thinking like, I don't know, I don't know anything, I'm like 25 years old, but I just remember thinking like the way that Punch Drunk thought about it and the way Randy was talking about marketing it, I was like, I really, I just have a feeling about it. And, um, you know, the rest is history certainly, but, you know, a huge fan of the show. I, I, I am incredibly inspired, continue to be by by Felix and Maxine and Colin and Livy and B and just the team that makes those worlds. And, and I just think they're so thoughtful about continuously challenging themselves, not making derivative versions of things they've done before. And um, I think we have a we owe a lot to them, right? Of, as sort of purveyors of this medium as, as really getting us started and continuing to push us in new directions. When did you find yourself crossing the streams and, and taking this this love you have for this form and mixing it with that you know the the, the corporate day job work and it, that ultimately becomes you know doing work for the clients and, mm. and doing their maze but but was there was there a, a moment when you realized that you know something like a Google would be open to doing doing it differently much in the same way that you know before even though there had been plenty of immersive what we now would recognize but wouldn't call them but would recognize as immersive theater stretching back for a couple of decades but there is something about the inflection point of sleep no more of of how 
you know, punch drunk approaches it because you hear about it on paper. You're like, oh, oh that sounds interesting. But then you experience it. It's, <laughs> it's qualitatively different. How Randy marketed it, like taking the knowledge that he had from the, the box days and, and making yeah. it just be this alluring, sexy, cool thing um, and kind of putting it all together that that becomes this, you know, the Cambrian explosion for this form. Was there a pivot point on on the corporate event side where you're like, oh, yeah, this is this is this is we can apply this there. Well, like so many things in life, it's kind of happenstance. But um, I spent a year, I think it was 20. It was like sort of 2015. Um, so this is after Queen of the Night, uh, after Queen of the Night, I sort of needed a palate cleanser. I mean, it was a wonderful experience, but I was sort of like looking for something different and um, helped open a restaurant, which is really sort of obsessed with hospitality as an immersive sort of genre of its own. Um, but, oh, yeah. but did that. And then after that sort of got involved um, working again with Corins and he and a company called Superfly um, were talking about a sort of potential um, partnership, creative partnership. And so for a year, um, I kind of worked between those two companies um, and looking in ways to how could you fuse what David does, which is sort of really, really outside the box, highly creative production design with what Superfly does. And I don't know if you know much about Superfly or listeners do, but they're they're sort of, um, you know, shifting a little bit their mission now, but they uh, created Bonnaroo back in the day and outside lands. And uh, what happened was is at Bonnaroo, uh, it, which sold, you know, incredibly well from the very get-go, they found on top of that, that brands were really interested in having a presence at the festival. And they found that they didn't want the branded stuff to feel uh, like this terribly attached appendage that didn't go with the rest, that stood out in a bad way. They were trying to think of how, how can we make this dope and cool for the people coming and not seem like we're selling out um, in all the ways. And so they ended up actually working with the brands to create activations and different things. So whether it was Tiva or it was uh, Kohler, you know, they would make these really thoughtful things so much so that some of those companies started saying, can you work with us as an agency outside the festivals for this other stuff we want to do? And oh, that ended up becoming a huge part of Superfly's business. It sort of became a music festival company and then uh, an experiential marketing company that also, you know, was one of the first to do really influencer-led marketing. So to see them and be able to be a part of some pitches and how they were talking to brands was was such an amazing experience. How they were able, you know, this guy Chad Isak, who's there in business development, and Chad is like born salesman, but so charismatic and like really a fan of the creative, but just such a good ambassador for the company. And, you know, to be with Chad on pitches to maybe Chase or other brands that you would think of as stodgy, like how they were able to connect the dots for those marketing teams about what they did. Um, I think that was a huge sort of inkling to me of, oh, there is a way to really do the crossover. So the Google project was in fact with them. Um, it was it was after I had left there and it started my own shop. Um, but but it was a great opportunity to, to experience how different companies do things. You know, I talk frequently to my team about how how Google was the first time I really was using Hangouts and sort of a combination of um, group chats and shared documents and video in a really interesting way. Like no one was sending email attachments to anybody. We were just working in all these work in progress decks. Um, and it was sort of sloppy on purpose. Um, and it was this sort of Google mentality of the sort of 
stacking things right from in this sort of developer mindset and so you know i realize like as much as they maybe have things to grab from us we have things to grab from the way these highly oiled companies work you know maybe maybe we don't want to take certain things from them that we want to keep more artistically minded but but certainly organizationally in the way they can come together and make decisions and actionalize plans um has been a really sort of lovely part of it that that i appreciate uh, getting every time right now with nvk what's the split uh how much is of your time is on creative you know direct to audience creative projects i don't know how else to call them <laughs> uh but things like theater of the mind how how much yeah. how much of your 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 day-to-day brain space is going into the art side and how much into the business side and i know you're mm-hmm. you're someone who who switches between the both but the client stuff and the theater stuff what, what's the breakdown in the shop yeah well, the way I think of it is is sort of like the it's a stocks and bonds balanced portfolio in a way. Nice. Um, so it's like the projects are, which I usually think of, you know, it's called like the direct to audience or, or what have you, um, are incredibly speculative. And frequently they will take a substantial amount of time to get off the ground. So even if they will be remunerative or just happen at some point, often it's not known and it will take years of time. So we're in a cycle right now where we have a few of those that are at the beginning, which is exciting in a lot of ways um, and, and kind of useful in a way because we're in like a similar part of the life cycle across them, which which enables us to, I think, be approaching them in a, in a sort of similar headspace. So, um, so those are projects that we're, you know, creatively involved in or uh, and producerially involved in and getting off the ground. And, and I think they will take maybe, maybe 30 to 35% of our company's time this year. Um, the balance will be in the sort of bonds, which are, um, supporting entertainment companies that are both immersive focused but also not immersive focused and uh, really really all of them the the sort of common bond they share is they're they're theatrical in some way um but those are really fun too you know it gives me a great excuse to work with people i love um and and to to sort of in some ways like take the general management part of what we do on the shows and apply that to companies. And that's really fun because those are evergreen durational experiences of their own. You know, there's no opening, there's no, no closing. It's just sort of continuous. Um, yeah. And so I sort of love that. Of course, I also love the, you know, the Brigadoon nature of a show and it sort of comes and goes. So for this year, we're doing that. And, and I think, like I said earlier, you know, we're, we're considering a few other things that would be sort of, like very early rough drafts of other projects that I think in some ways what we've talked about recently is is more and more of an interest in fostering and creating um, legitimate community and kind of blending aspects of, of fiction with ritual and nonfiction and true experience um, for people to come together sort of as I was saying earlier, loving loving hospitality and restaurants and come from a crazy Italian family, breaking bread is really important. So sort of sort of looking at like, I don't even know what, what to call them yet, but sort of these kind of happenings or experiences. Um, oh, and thinking about them together. in terms of as one-offs or as like 
creating spaces where they can where they can happen. I mean, one of the things because because that that sense of like a venue, right, seems yeah. to always be the, the the golden ticket to making this work sustainable. And I think you've dialed in on something important, which is the the hospitality nature of this. Mm-hmm. I often think like the things that have the most legs are when people are thinking deeply about the guest experience, you know, not yes. only a person as an attendee or as the protagonist or, or a supporting character on a show, but then just them as a person being cared for uh, on the ground themselves and that kind of mode shifting about like when, when someone approaches, the patron appo- approaches, they have a lot of different identities they're carrying with them when they enter the door. Absolutely. Oh, I think we, we talk about it as much as you can, right? Meeting people where they are. Um, and I think the reason immersive is so good at that when, when done really effectively is like not all people want to interact in the same way. You know, some want to be very voyeuristic and sort of to the back. Some want to be more involved. Some are not sure. And if they might be surprised at how they selected and we do our best work, like this was really the main thing we tried to accomplish at Queen of the Night is, is meeting people where they are and fostering a sort of safety to be vulnerable in in their in finding out their agency. And so it's something I'm deeply interested in. And I think from the hospitality side, you know, I've read so much about how Keith McNally has run his restaurants and what major food group is doing as a as a company with all of these different unique brands, but such a sort of theatrical flair. Um, and yeah, I just think there's a lot to borrow from them as much as, you know, from the arts or other places. And so I, I think they're, they, they'll probably be one-offs to start, but I'm, I'm really, you know, I can't tell if it's, I feel like I'm getting old and having children, but very interested <laughs> in sort of seasonality and, and the sort of, uh, you know, here in New York, of course, we have these such defined seasons that make us crazy, but also give us this life rhythm. And so trying to look at that in a way as, as something that, that grounds us in, in the real world, but but also on top of that basis, um, creating things that feel a bit magical and special. And I sort of ideally would see it as like a, a series that happens eight times per year in different mm. places all over the world um, to experience that it. Makes, I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me, the, the, the seasonal nature of it, particularly when we start mixing with ritual, with you know just that sense of creating a, a heightened reality for folks. And... I mean, here in LA, of course, we have what we call spooky season, right? Like the time from like, <laughs> late August into like early November, where like right. all the haunt and the haunters go, and 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 you know that's being in LA. It can be like year round, like the the Halloweeners are are a constant force, and you know <laughs> Universal's Universal's turning that into like a year round horror attraction in Las Vegas, right? Because the lands of it, right? Yeah, exactly. But there's still something important about that season, uh, and and for me, uh, you know, there's 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 a little bit of that for that season, but also, the you know, the rituals around a Christmas season or you know, like summertime and like everyone trying to get to beach body readiness and like all these sort of, <laughs> sort of rhythms. Or or you go back farther, you go into like some of like you know the 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 old world traditions or like you know say the celtic tradition you know stuff around the fire festivals and just absolutely the catholic tradition you know like the the different feasts of the saints like all these things are it's just deeply human to to have these rhythms tied to the weather and 
and and what what is what is the whole society doing at the at that moment right does yes. it bind us together yes like a yeah we have these kind of natural metronomes that i think we've been able to escape or innovate out of in some ways to to you know to some great degree of of joy and fun and and yet there's these these things you know someone was telling me about the concept of second sleep used to be a big thing because people yeah often go to sleep when it got dark out and then no one was really needing to sleep for like 11 or 12 hours and so at like 1 or 2 a.m most people would wake up for like an hour and a half and i'm like that i think is probably really healthy to do so i don't know i'm just interested in like we've come so far in so many ways but i think we have weeded out some things that might have been so constant for so long of humanity that um that more than ever we might need a little bit more of. So, so I'm trying to do that really thoughtfully. And um, I sort of feel like I'm at the very beginning of a long research project of some kind that, and it's thrilling to not really know where it will go, but to just want to um, not rush it and really just think uh, thoughtfully about sort of what am I interested in as a human and at this point in my life and, and what are the things that I think the humans around me are, are sort of craving and needing and it's a fun place to be. I almost hate to ask this next question because we're in this lovely human spot, but I wanted to like put your businessman <laughs> cap on for, for a moment. Cause there was something you said earlier that, that got me thinking because, you know, a show like theater, of the mind, you know, it's, it's at the Denver center of the performing arts right now. I know that they're, eyeing on that going to like other performing arts centers of that nature these 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 biz, these institutions that have mm-hmm. you know a, a public and private backing mixing but like they're art facing right you know they're not yeah. necessarily a commercial enterprise say the way like a broadway production is i'm wondering from from where you're sitting what you think the model is for the creative projects the ones that are a little more speculative do you, do you see some of them launching off you know, in, in the Broadway, in the independent or in like the kind of blockbuster model of, of a sleep no more, or is, is there a line here where we're going to see more in these producing entities of the theater world, you know, taking on shows like theater, of the mind, or, or, or is it all of the above at this point? Are, are all the roads open? Yeah. I, I, and even within it, you know, theater of the mind as such a, a large complicated undertaking um you know space-wise in denver it's fifteen thousand feet so it's not you know like these monumental crazy ones but i i often refer to that show and others like it as you're building a ship in a bottle and so it's like the level of detail work you have to do Mm. is so specific and so i think the denver center was was so many things that even similar institutions might not have. And I don't mean that as a knock against them. It's just sort of how they've been built. They have this, this very, very experienced production team that has worked together a lot. And so it's not the idea of like, the you know, I always think of the movie Armageddon when you're like, who do we need to go to the asteroid? But it's like <laughs> people have been going to the asteroid together for a while. Um, and that was a great thing to leverage. And also that they... Now let's just get some guys who do work on oil derricks. Come on. <laughs> I know. got to drill, baby, drill. 
And and they're an institution that is like willing to take some risk, or at least was on that show. And yeah, as a sort of nonprofit, many are not like that, you know, to do a 16 week run when most nonprofit, at least in regional theaters, right, might run, you know, a show might run six to eight weeks at the at the longest. So so I think hopefully more will adopt that approach. But but I think the main thing is, you know, we have a major for this genre, a major real estate problem, um, which is the thrilling part is you're sort of building the theater and the the set and the show at the same time. Um, but producerially, that that makes for a huge CapEx expenditure. Um, and on the commercial real estate side, a lot of risk for the people putting up money. Because, you know, if you do a Broadway show, like, Lord knows the theater owners take a huge amount of the money off the top for rent and for operating expenses. But the real benefit is you're working under the auspices of a week-to-week license. And so if the show doesn't work out or at some point needs to close, you kind of wipe your hands of it. Whereas if you have a commercial lease for 10 years like, and you're paying rent, you will forfeit a security deposit. You have a good guy guarantee. You have all these things that make it really, really challenging to sort of take a risk on one show. And so, you know, thing I've been really interested in and probably should be working on full time from like a capitalist perspective, but is I think we're going to hopefully enter a period in which there will be a kind of institutionalization of venues that can host immersive works, um, almost like rentable theaters in the way that someone has taken the risk, either uh, purchased a building or as a you know 49 or 99 year lease to do all the, I always say the things that no audience member is going to thank you for, like HVAC and working bathrooms sort of going back to the beginning of the conversation, where can I go pee? Right. Um, that takes so much and are not pretty and not interesting to look at, but but to do that and set up the bar and those things. And and even potentially, you know, there's an organization called Broadway Across America in the, in the Broadway space that basically ended up uh, gobbling up a, a bunch of touring venues throughout the country. And so that's enabled sort of a, a much simpler way of, of creating sort of booking schedules for tours, for shows. So I think that's another place that the immersive uh, 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 genre will hopefully be able to take to. Um, but it, it's going to take, we're at an interesting moment, inflection point in real estate, just like fewer people going to the office. And hopefully that is going to inure to the benefit. But I, I think there's so much white space for the right ownership group or the right people to come together and and make a huge splash in this way because i think it would increase exponentially the amount of shows that would be made in immersive because it would just take away a huge portion of the expensive risk yeah it does feel like it's for a decade now figuring out what does a touring house for immersive look like or, or what does you know what is the the permanent venue that can be modded uh, to roll in the next yeah. show, all of that has been on the creative side. You know, something we all talk about, and an inching ever closer towards someone just coming on and taking the risks of of building those out. And and we're seeing touring shows now of of experiential work, and we're seeing, you know, more being done with with less that ship in the bottle model you you, you just mentioned. And we've also seen like you know. You know, Punch Drunk tried to bring the burnt city to LA, and just the the process of securing yeah. that, you know, was so painful. They were just like London, <laughs> just we'll it's just brutal. Well, yeah. yeah, the the red tape over there is so much smaller than here, and yeah. it's it's one of the things that because we do a fair amount of um, 
early stage consulting for people who are like, I have this thing I want to do. Let's talk about it. Let's how, how can we do it? And I'm always talking about like just the permitting process. Permits, baby. The lobbying. You know, it's it's yeah. it adds a lot of time and a lot of complexity. And, um, you know, like the Sweeney Todd that I did at Barrow Street, the original version there, you know, you got your tickets at a at a what was a barber shop across the street from the pie shop, um, which they were both working on a on a high street in Tooting, and uh, there was also the bar, so people could buy a drink there and walk across the street and take it to the pie shop. And I was like, in New York, you would get like seventy three citations before you could do that. Um, yeah, and it's tough, right? I mean, they're there for a reason, but but it does it does put a lot of um, uh, of, of difficult structure on the works here. So my hope is, you know, a combination of the real estate becoming um, simpler and also, you know, New York has this this new thing called a nightmare, which is sort of adopted from a European context. But, you know, people who are thinking about how to how to create nightlife and, and facilitate a, a more, um, you know, palatable business environment for the making of those things. I hope that immersive will become more and more um, central to those thoughts because it, it sort of touches all the pieces and injects a lot into the economies, but but desperately needs the help of, of local municipalities to make it easier. Well, Nate, I could talk to you about all of this for a bazillion more hours, but I know you, you've got to run and I, I got to run too. Uh, but <laughs> let's, let's if not with a recorder on, let's definitely do this again sometime. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, it's a pleasure. Yeah. Oh, that was really good. All right. Uh, NVK is the website if you want to get more and you can find it in the show notes. Nate, once again, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks so much, Noah. Take care. Athena Demos and Doug Jacobson of Big Rock Creative are the team that created the award-winning BRC VR, which recently had its final official encore on Altspace, the Microsoft-owned VR platform, which is being sunsetted this March. They're here on the show to talk about uh, that and to talk about the future of Big Rock Creative. Athena and Doug, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having us. Been a long time. Yeah, glad to be here again. A lot of people listening to the show know that the that the the arrival of BRCVR uh, was literally the highlight of my 2020, uh, which, you know, and and you know, like even though 2020 was a bad year, I'm so thankful to have that. Like very very fond memories. And so the the, the yeah. word that Alt Space was closing up, uh, and that uh, you know this could mean that that what you've built has gone away forever, but. I want to note real quick, you know, Burning Man is always ephemeral and uh, BRCVR, of course, recreates, uh, you know, the you know, virtually some of the vibe and the experience of going to Burning Man. And it, you know, out there in the Black Rock Desert, the man is, you know, built up and then wiped away each year. But BRCVR has kind of ironically persisted. And yeah. The platform's going away. So like this, this feels like kind of... Well, how do you feel about this? This is, this is oh, so I, odd I, what's going on. I was sort of amused by the ephemeralness of this particular reburn we just did. It really put a whole different spin on it. It was going away. I mean, we'll move it somewhere else and we have all the Unity files. I mean, it's not disappearing forever. But um, this incarnation of VRCVR is going away and it's sort of 
really gave us that emotional feeling of Burning Man, that one element that was always missing that we uh, strive to bring to BRCBR. Where every time we did the virtual burn, we would be like, how long do we keep the, this up? And I mean, how long do we keep this world going with the BRCBR? Do we take it down and then bring it up later? We're always debating that. But in this case, it was sort of um, handled for us in a sense. Athena? Oh, I, that was my answer. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> I've had a lot of people ask about, you know, we have a principle of immediacy. And uh, some people think that what we do with BRCBR is sort of a violation of immediacy. And I say that the human connection that we have between people, that is, that is the immediacy. That is the thing that cannot be replicated. That's the thing that you need to be present in the moment in order to enjoy, in order yeah. to experience. Um, the venues that we create, the worlds that we create, sure, you'll get to see them again, but a lot of the art at Burning Man's like that. And you get to see that art again in other places or other years, especially with the art cars. But the human connection, that is what you only get one shot at. And yeah. we burn our art at Burning Man, lots of it. And to have the platform be burned down almost seems like a bit of pliodipity yeah the 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 community is not ephemeral it's just the the platform is so um you know taking all these burning man concepts and taking them into a virtual space is challenging and raises lots of philosophical questions but man um, boy did i feel a sense of that feeling that it's like thursday or friday at burning man walking around reburn and seeing all these people coming in and going god this thing is you know the event's almost over you know it sort of had that feeling of that feeling of um a ticking clock which um which was uh which was really present for me you noted that the the assets they're in unity and like so almost like the 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 parts of the burn that are kind of broken down and then brought back every year or, or the art cars or, you know, Thunderdome or, or, or whatever, um, you know, it can, it can survive, right? Like, like the, those assets can, can thrive on because Unity's not locked to alt spray, alt space. Thank the maker. I'm wondering, what do you think happens to that energy, that community though? Because like there, there was something about interfacing with it in alt space. There was a simplicity, uh, a user friendliness to that platform uh, that that made it, you know, easier to gather like 10, 15 people who who are maybe a little bit more VR averse yeah. but did have an Oculus to like go run around the playa. Frankly, um, about in twenty twenty one, AltSpace made this um, had switched the login credentials to be uh, more Microsoft like, um, so um, it was it became more onerous to log in. And it never the last time I went in, <laughs> never worked right. Um, yeah. People. So what we had to do is start increasing our onboarding calls to get people on and go. I, I I keep saying that I'm human, but it keeps kicking. And so there were so many problems that I actually think that it um, certainly was more of a secure login, but also bounced a lot of people off that could have come in more casually. So wherever mm -hmm. we go next, one of the top of the list besides unity based 
is the ability for the casual user to come by without having to go through some onerous onboarding and um, check it out. And um, it was one of the things we struggled with, um, you know, in AltSpace um, with so many great things about AltSpace that we're going to miss. Um, that's probably not one of them. Yeah, definitely not one of them. Uh, every time we do an event, whether it's BRCVR or for another client, we have built into our budget, built, built into our proposal, um, onboarding. We have onboarding for their team, and then we have onboarding for uh, the participants that are going to be coming to the event. And it's normally four hours, two hours for the team, two hours for the participants, uh, wow. just to teach them how to get onto the platform. And I would like to not have to do that. Yeah. Well, yeah. we find ourselves in this moment, you know, where alt space is being closed up, you know, meta is starting to, you know, shutter some of its games. Right. Horizons definitely still like dog paddling into the middle of the lake and then going like, well, what are we doing here? And then like, there's no lifeguards. Um, it, it feels like a fraught moment for a lot of folks who've been creating in, in VR, even yeah. though there's still a lot of stuff that's great and cool, but you can sort of feel we're going through one of those like little shakes again. Yeah. What's your perspective on, on this moment? Um, you know, I, I think um, when COVID receded, um, you know, some of these companies and then the interest rates went up or whatever version of fear these companies had, some of the bigger ones bailed. Or, you know, Microsoft certainly is not bailing. They have mesh, but they they laid off 10,000 people in the mixed reality. And so a lot of them are in the mixed reality. So I, I think we're in a, in a moment of discovery again, um, where, you know, but, but my whole focus is on the hardware. Is the hardware going to get easier once that it's just all about that hardware? Like HTC has a really wonderful headset. Um, you know, we obviously are waiting for Apple. Um, I just saw that Google and Samsung and Qualcomm are making an XR headset. Um, so the beat marches on. And, and until the hardware gets more casual and more MR, um, you know, we're going to be in this gray zone. But this year at CES, I saw um, reviewing a lot of great stuff coming down the line. So it kind of gave me hope. But we still have to discover where, where the audiences are in this XR space at this time. We have to survive long enough to get to sort of the casual hardware. That's sort of my feeling about it. Athena? So I recently read an article and the, the headline, I mean, it was clickbait and it said that, you know, Meta had lost like seven point something billion dollars um, in their, uh, in what they've put into the headsets and what they've put into. And, and I read that and I said, that's framed wrong. Like the media is getting it wrong. It's not that Meta lost money. That's how much money they've invested in it. If you just looked at Microsoft lost X amount of money on MRTK, HoloLens, and Altspace, that wasn't a loss. That was an investment. They were investing in their programs of the future. That was research and development. So yeah. that's not I mean, a loss. And I think, I think if you know how much money Amazon lost for decades. 
becoming like the dominant force uh, in commerce. Yeah, you know? exactly. yeah. The Not amount book, of money that Meta commerce. can, but the amount of money that Meta can make in the future with the technology that they're building now. That's an investment. That's not a loss. That's them yeah. investing in their future. I mean, oftentimes when I'm yeah. reading, when I'm reading like the, the the tech press, particularly the tech press that is attached to, you know, the capital markets, like I'm always detecting, you know, how are the analysts pitching themselves off against each other? What are the hedge fund managers doing? Who's trying to short something and make a buck? Because exactly. it has almost yeah, it has almost less to do half the time with the actual technology. And there's a long way to go with this tech. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I'm not Pollyannish about this, right? Like I, I use my quest to a lot less than I used to. Uh, and, and that I imagined I would be. And so much of that has to do with onboarding stuff or there isn't something new to play, but even then it's, it's still so much of what's going on with the, the fear is, is based off of, you know what are the capital markets doing, and and who can who can make a quicker buck by putting someone in the ground than by, you know, pushing the technology forward. Well, Meta... I mean, I I really believe that the the reason why alt space is being sunsetted is all they did was look at numbers in a spreadsheet, and not look at actual what's going on on the platform. Oh yeah. That feels yeah. definitely like that's, that's across the whole of, of tech right now, right? Is like somebody yeah. somewhere said like cut. Okay, we're going to roll this back because layoffs are going to make the street happy. Let's go. And so there's been some really great reporting over the past few weeks about how well layoffs don't actually help companies' bottom lines. If anything, it it makes it harder for them to ride to the next wave because they've managed to you know destroy a bunch of institutional knowledge. Um, and so it's that oh, quarterly yeah. short thinking all the time. Yeah. And, and I would say, uh, you know, in, in my opinion, um, knowing, you know, Microsoft versus Apple, Microsoft is more of a enterprise focused company and Apple's more of a consumer focused company in general. Sure. You yeah. have Xbox and a few things, but, um, and Microsoft, you know, had the phone. If you look at the history of Microsoft, they do step into things and then back out and step in. Now, to be, to be fair, they're, They've taken uh, what I think they've taken parts of um, this platform and used it in upcoming mesh, which could be a year or two off, I guess. I don't know. Um, And so, um, you know, they were just it was a there were some other internal politics probably going on. uh, As far as Meta goes, um, it's an interesting case because Meta put themselves by changing their name as the face of this whole thing. And they were already despised because of their terrible track record um, because of, of, you know, I don't even need to go over that. And no one loves Facebook. No one's like, I'm a big Facebook fan. Um, so, so by putting themselves in there, once, once things weren't going perfectly or they needed to retrench or they were investing money, there was sort of a pile on. Um, and it sort of reverberated throughout the XR. Oh, it's all stupid and it's not going to happen. And it's, you know, it's like, wow, that was fast. We got consumed by, we were, you know, things got great and then consumed by the uh, press. And then now it's, it's over, it's done. And now it'll probably just chug along more quietly in the background um, as AI takes the next um, spotlight. 
um, away from it was it was it was XR and then sort of crypto simultaneously, and those both got deemed for various reasons. Um, not to get into it, but I think crypto maybe earned it in this case, but I don't think XR earned it. Um, <laughs> just, yeah, I, I don't, I, now I, I, no, my, my assessment is the same as yours. So yeah, like, I don't, yeah. yeah. Like one, one of those things is, is not like the others. Uh, right. One of those things just didn't belong. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So anyway, it's, it's, it's a complicated thing. Um, but you know, there's still great shit coming out. There's still great, uh, hardware coming out. There's, um, Still people in the scene, uh, still an Apple headset coming out. Um, all the new headsets will probably be MR, so be great, some, some great apps coming out. So we'll move beyond the Quest 2 as the standard bearer, hopefully, to a faster headset that we can do cool stuff with. So in so many ways, BRCVR was, you know, y'all's signature piece. It was, it was, for lack of a better term, consumer facing. Uh, it was something that, you know, when you popped it up, anyone who had access could go check it out. You do a lot of work for clients. What does it mean that, that at least for now, the, the, the easy access to your signature piece is, is, is going away? Is there a lot of then pressure for you to find a space to kind of reopen up BRCVR or, or, or do some new showcasey thing on a different platform? I think yes. we're going in a completely new direction. I mean, not completely new, but we definitely have our forward thinking of what we're developing. We're still going to put worlds on different platforms and produce events. What we have really honed our skills at is event production, virtual reality event production. And we're going to keep doing that. The community wants to keep getting together. So we're going to see what other platforms have to offer, but we're we're also have our sights on creating something that doesn't exist not to commit you all to a calendar point but is there is there a kind of a, a ballpark of when to maybe expect something of that from that forward thinking well we gave a know? sneak peek to everybody at the reburn we had several worlds that were open that showed how we were meshing the physical rally with the digital reality and what that looks like and how you can interact with it um so Everyone kind of got to see the direction that we're going in and um, when that's going to be available really depends on the, the partners that come and join us. The, the people who want to fund the project or get involved in programming or development or stuff like that, we're, we're moving forward and it'll happen when it happens. But if we get a little bit of fuel underneath our wings, then we'll get there quicker. Yeah, um, the, the keyword for me is immersive storytelling. Um, you know, having been in sort of the LA sort of cinema scene, the, the question becomes, how, how can we tell great stories in, and, and, and a lot of people have done that in alt space and in VR chat. And then how can we expand on that? You know, we went and shot a lot of footage at the last burn in VR formats, all kinds of things we did. And now we have all this content to tell a story with in a virtual space. So not just play uh, a 360 or 180 video, but be in alt, be in a in a digital space while triggering videos and doing different things and telling a story. That's, that's sort of that's really exciting to me, and we're sort of leaning in that into that a little bit. Well, I'm definitely. 
definitely interested in seeing where you guys take this and uh, and how it manifests across the the various um, instances of the metaverse. A word I'm I'm not terrified of anymore. Uh, <laughs> I used to love it, then I hated it. Now I'm like, oh, ah, it feels it feels okay. Um, it's like an old friend. Yeah. And like an old friend, yeah, an old friend who like crashed on your couch unexpectedly, yeah. and then you were like, "Why? Why? Where you were in? You were in Cleveland yeah. for like nine years. What's going on?" I got drunk, but then you know, oh, but yeah. he's all right. Yeah, I know. He's always fine. You know, um, like they went corporate for a while, and then you know, <laughs> you know, so, sorry. Um, exactly. Uh, I love it. We can take this metaphor for a while. Oh, we could, we could. Uh, <laughs> Athena, Doug, thank you both so much for for, for jumping in. Uh, when folks want to connect with you uh, as you build your future, oh, where should they go? Uh, I highly recommend just going to our website. Uh, we have two of them, actually. The For Burning Man, it's brcvr.org, and that's for everything that we do that is plier-related. And then if you would like us to build something for you, um, then you go to bigrockxr.com. All right. Thank you both. Thank you. Once again, I want to thank Nate, Athena, and Doug for being our guests on the show this week. Check the show notes to find out how to contact them, follow up on their work, et cetera, et cetera. You know how to do this by now, unless this is your first week, in which case check the show notes and there, there are links in there. Okay. So, uh, where am I at? Where am I at? Uh, I'm, I'm clearly uh, very amped up about how uh, uh, good the Patreon is doing while wow, saying that's just frightened me to say that. Uh, being over 400 Patreon backers uh, is great, uh, particularly even though that's still like a fraction of the people who like interact with us on the regular. It still like really makes me feel like we've made some OK choices, maybe not perfect choices. There's obviously bumps along the road all the time. Um, and also just looking at how much work is starting to spin up in everything immersive. Like I said, this is going to be a good newsletter this week. There's a lot. There's a lot last week. It's starting to flow again. Uh, a lot of stuff is hitting, you know, the PR inbox right now. And I'm just feeling, I'm feeling like we're going to make it. Um, it always does like this. We're like, oh no. And then it happens. And then we keep going. And one day we won't have to worry about it. One day, one day, uh, I'm going to a show tonight. Uh, it's been a hot minute. If, uh, if I saw you there, I hope you said hi. And, uh, and then you'll be like, why doesn't Noah say anything? Uh, cause the podcast comes out on Friday. Well, I'm, I'm recording this on a Thursday. So, you know, next week I'll be like, I saw so-and-so there. Wait, but <sighs> you don't know to say hi to me. That doesn't, isn't going to do us any good. Look, hopefully you said hi. I'll wait for you to say hi. If I didn't say hi to you, know that I was waiting for you to say hi. There you go. I'm excusing my social awkwardness ahead of time. Ooh, how convenient. I should do this more often. Okay, anyway, uh, the sugar is really kicking in, and I do have to leave in about 10 minutes, so we'll do this in like two or three minutes. Um, we did put out the call sheet. Uh, we did uh, put that out on all our social medias. And, uh, seriously, if you have something, send it our way. 
right? Like it's best to send it into the email because I, I work out of email. Um, I don't know. That's enough for now. I want to, I want to get you off and, and back to what you're supposed to be doing. I gotta, I gotta get on the road and, and drive out to North Hollywood. Uh, cause you know, it's a Thursday night and there's a show and I might see you at it. So let's do the credits. Um, there'll be more stuff to talk about. There's some fun stuff in the background. Like I'll, I'll bring it all up and, and hopefully like in a week or so, we'll start having some next stage stuff to announce and, and some speakers. We're starting to line up some fun stuff. So what's one of those weeks I'm chatty, but I have nothing to talk about. Ugh, the worst, the associate producer who is not the worst in fact is maybe the best of this podcast is Parker Sella. Music for Nose Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society and Solar the Podcast. So many S's. Why is it got to be so sibling, guys? Special thanks to Shivana Lachlan. More S's for voicing our intro. Uh, this is voiceover humor. Um, maybe I should do voiceover. Shvan, should I do what? Uh, the No Pro Podcast is written, edited, hosted, produced, and mixed by yours truly, <laughs> undiagnosed ADHD guy. Noah Nelson. And until next time, I'll see you at the show.